I hope you all have two handouts. Uh, I'm sorry that the chart didn't copy as well as I intended it to, the lines on that chart. I'll see if I can fix that in the coming weeks. I'm learning how to use some of these things on my computer. <laughs> um, you'll see we're, we're starting a two-part study of the kingdom of God this week into next week, which is actually the two parts in what look like a five-part series on 1 Timothy 4.1. Uh, here, here's what happened, just to explain it to you uh, a little bit. First uh, Timothy 4.1 says, Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith. In latter times. So what are the latter times? Now, I've studied such things in the past several times, and you know, I thought I had a good handle on it, but I thought I'd, I'd dig into it again just to make sure I was right. And, and this led me to assume that the latter times and the last days are pretty much two ways of saying the same thing. And then the latter times are the last days of what? Well, the New Testament talks about this age and the age to come. I think the latter days or the last, the latter times or the last days are the last days of this age as we await the age to come. And so that led me to want to get into the concepts of this age and the age to come. And that turned into one or two weeks of teachings. And then it dawned on me that, well, really, to understand this language of this age and the age to come, you really, conceptually, these are parallel to the ideas of the, of the kingdom of God is here now, but not yet fully come, and that, that comes in the age to come. And so I really should get into the kingdom of God and talk about that, and then get into this age and the age to come. And then we can look at 1 Timothy 4.1 and go, oh yeah, I know what the latter times means. So, my brain started to work again a little bit better, and this is what has happened. Um, so, uh, tough it out with me. We're going to be doing what they call some biblical theology, where we're tracing certain themes in the scriptures in order to get a better a handle on, the, in this case, the flow of redemptive history in a certain way. We're really talking about eschatology um, and uh, how God's plan of redemption unfolds both now and in some ways in the future. And so there you, there you have it. Hang on to that chart because that's kind of, uh, my, that's my way of picturing or help you to picture what's, what we're going to be looking at and how it all kind of fits together. Uh, I'm hoping to help you kind of visualize it and have a summary of it as we go along. And then uh, I'll be giving you ho hopefully handouts for each message uh, that will give you the scriptures I've chosen to look at. We won't by any means look at all the texts that we could be looking at. We, we, we really don't have time to do that. But, but I, I will pick out texts that I think will make the point really well in their context. Uh, and enough of them so that you can see that it's a clearly grounded scriptural concept that I'll be looking at. With all that said, I feel a great need to pray, as always, before we begin. So let's do that, and then we'll try to start our biblical theological study of the kingdom of God, this age and the age to come, so we can read 1 Timothy 4.1 correctly, I hope. Holy Father, I do thank you so much for your great love for us, and I thank you for uh, the many blessings that you bestowed upon us through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Uh, I thank you that we have been 
brought into the kingdom of the Son of your love, even now, as we await the kingdom in its fullness in the future, that the, the powers of the age to come, the powers of the kingdom to come, the spiritual realities that will one day be ours in their fullness have reached back into the past and taken hold of us like a heavenly tractor beam pulling us toward the future. And I just pray, Lord, that you'll help us to understand these concepts correctly so that we can think correctly as we read the Bible and share the gospel with others. Help us to better appreciate the tremendous blessing we have to know you as our heavenly king as a result. I ask all these things for your glory and for our good and in the name of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Sounds like the prince of the power of the air was messing with us again there a little bit. Uh, <clears throat> there are some who have seen a difference between these terms, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven in scripture. Uh, they're, they're what we'd call more classical dispensationalists for those of you who know the theological lingo. They believe that there were a number of dispensations in Scripture, and they're not really wrong about that in one sense. Different eras in which God worked in different ways. And older dispensationalists tended to make very strong distinctions between what they felt they were identifying as these different dispensations or periods of, of God's activity in Scripture. They tend to line up with the various biblical covenants amongst the more level-headed dispensationalists. But... They used to make very strong distinctions between terms like this in the Bible. And this phrase, kingdom of God and kingdom of heaven, was no different. Uh, in fact, there's an article on a website of the Bible, Genesis, and Geology Ministry entitled, Kingdom of Heaven and Kingdom of God, The Doctrinal Differences. So these are doctrinal differences between these two phrases. I'm going to be arguing against that. Uh, Here's what they write in part. Knowing the doctrinal differences between the terms kingdom of heaven and kingdom of God is the key to understanding the complete timeline of biblical history, past, present, and future, the proper place of the church, and the prophetic future of Israel. The Bible is about the struggle for a kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, a kingdom with its capital city, Jerusalem, is on earth. So the kingdom of heaven, they say, is on earth. It's Interesting name for a kingdom on earth, kingdom of heaven. But um, They go on to say, I'm going to argue it's on earth too, but not quite the way they are. <laughs> it's on, uh, we'll, we'll see. The Lord Jesus Christ, they go on to say, came to his own and preached a dualistic message. This dualistic message, they're going to argue, centers on these two terms. To the Jews, the heirs of the promised political kingdom, the Lord preached the gospel of the kingdom of heaven, a literal physical kingdom soon to come. They cite Matthew 4.17, from that time Jesus began to preach and to say, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. They go on to say, to the entire world Jesus preached the coming kingdom of God, which is about righteousness and holiness. And they cite Mark 1.14, now after that John was put in prison, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God and saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent ye and believe the gospel. Now, part of the older thinking amongst people like this was that Jesus came to offer a physical kingdom 
to the Jews on earth, and they rejected it. And because they rejected it, then the gospel went out to all the nations. And he went from talking about the kingdom of God in their view, to, or kingdom of heaven rather, to the Jews, and then shifted to this idea of the kingdom of God to everyone. A spiritual kingdom, because the Jews, they kind of, Jews rejected plan A, so Jesus went to plan B. That's kind of the way, the older way of thinking it about it. Now, as I said, this used to be a much more common view amongst dispensationalists, but it's currently being abandoned by many, if not most, scholars who would today identify themselves as dispensationalists, and we'll see why, because there's just no basis at all for talking this way, at all. So if you ever run into this, today you're going to learn why it's wrong. Um, and that's because the scriptural evidence indicates that such a distinction is incorrect, and that, in fact, the phrases kingdom of God and kingdom of heaven are used interchangeably in the New Testament. They're used interchangeably by Jesus and by the apostles. Uh, for example, Jesus used the terms interchangeably when commenting on the incident with a rich young ruler in Matthew 19. Matthew 19, verses 23 and 24, Jesus said to his disciples, Assuredly, I say to you that it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And again, I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Clearly, for Jesus, the kingdom of heaven here and the kingdom of God are the same thing. He's not talking about two different kingdoms. This rich man isn't trying to enter two different kingdoms. He's trying to enter one kingdom, which can be either called the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. And Jesus doesn't seem to mind much which you use, right? Which term you, you use. Now, although the phrase kingdom of heaven is actually used only in Matthew's gospel, parallel passages with the other gospels indicate that it means the same thing as the phrase kingdom of God. For example, in, in Matthew 11.11, uh, 11, we're going to compare this with, with a similar statement in Luke 7.28. These are parallel passages recorded by both gospel writers. In Matthew 11.11, 11, Jesus says, Assuredly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has not risen one greater than John the Baptist, but he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Now, the idea that the kingdom of heaven was something that Jesus was going to bring about, but that he didn't, and switched to the kingdom of God, is, doesn't make any sense here, because Jesus is speaking of the kingdom of heaven as something present that John was already in, and his disciples are already in, apparently. In Luke 7.28, the parallel text, he says, For I say to you, among those born of women, there is not a greater prophet than John the Baptist, but he was least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Clearly, uh, these are interchangeable terms. Now, we'll see that there may be a reason that Luke kind of prefers to go with the kingdom of heaven terminology, and the other writers of the Synoptic Gospels, Mark and Luke, tend to prefer to want to go with the idea of kingdom of God. Uh, but for now, let's just see that they're the same thing. Uh, we can also compare what is said in Matthew 13, 11, where Jesus answered and said to them, because it has been given to you, you know, the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. This was, he was talking about why he speaks in parables. He said, because it has been given to you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. But in Mark 
4.11, a parallel passage, he said to them, to you it has been given to know the mystery of the kingdom of God. But to those who are outside, all things come in parables. They, they mean the same thing. This is why the, the writers of these Gospels, didn't, it didn't matter to them which term they used so much in terms of what Jesus was saying. This is why these terms can be used interchangeably, and they don't think they're misquoting Jesus' intent. Because he, he apparently used these terms interchangeably, so they did too. And uh, as I said, they might have reasons, Mark and, and Luke, for preferring kingdom of God language. And of course, we'll see in the Acts, the book of Acts, in the apostolic preaching, that's the language they stick with. Um, but for now, again, we're just seeing that they're used interchangeably. We can also compare what Jesus says in Matthew uh, 19.14 where he says, let the little children come to me and do not forbid them, for of such is the kingdom of heaven. But in Mark 10, 14, Jesus said, let the little children come to me and do not forbid them, for such is the kingdom of God. Again, the terminology is used interchangeably. As for why the phrase kingdom of heaven should be preferred, at least usually, because we've already seen that the kingdom of God appears in Matthew's gospel too, because Jesus used it interchangeably uh, himself, we saw in our first example we looked at. Um, but why does he prefer this phrase, kingdom of heaven, where kingdom of God seems to be the more consistent phrase used by Mark and Luke? In fact, they don't refer to the kingdom of heaven. Matthew does. Well, I think D.A. Carson gives a helpful, and I think likely explanation. And because it's a lengthy quote, I've put it in your notes, so it'll be easy for you to follow along. He writes, the, the most common explanation is that Matthew avoided kingdom of God to remove unnecessary offense to Jews who often use circumlocutions, and I put a definition of that for you there, indirect ways of referring to something is, is, is circumlocution. It's a roundabout way of saying something, right? At any rate, uh, he's, he's positing that they, Matthew avoided kingdom of God that phrase, to remove unnecessary offense to Jews who often use circumlocutions like heaven to refer to God. He gives some examples there. The suggestion has merit, yet Matthew is a subtle and elusive writer, and two other factors may also be involved. One, kingdom of heaven may anticipate the extent of Christ's post-resurrection authority. God's sovereignty in heaven and on earth is now mediated through him, as we heard read in the Great Commission this morning. And two, kingdom of God makes God the king. And though this does not prevent the other synoptics, the other gospels which present the same point of view, Mark and Luke, from ascribing the, king, the kingship to Jesus, there's less room to maneuver. Matthew's kingdom of heaven assumes it is God's kingdom and occasionally assigns it specifically to the Father, the leaving room to ascribe it frequently to Jesus, for Jesus is King Messiah. This inevitably has Christological implications. The kingdom of heaven is simultaneously the kingdom of the Father and the kingdom of the Son of Man. So these are the reasons he's giving. Well, maybe Matthew had reasons that had to do with who he was writing to, which if you read the Gospel of Matthew, it does seem to be more aimed at a Jewish audience. And, and he might have preferred to highlight Jesus' use of, of the phrase kingdom of heaven for these kinds of reasons that he had. Uh, in going about writing his gospel. But of course we know uh, Mark and Luke tended to be written for Gentile audiences, 
from the phrase kingdom of heaven wouldn't speak as clearly maybe as the term kingdom of God. They might not understand that heaven, kingdom of heaven, means kingdom of God so clearly as we might having a whole Bible, right? And so we can see why they might do that, but the, the point is that they are referring to the same thing, right? Kingdom of God and kingdom of heaven are just different ways of describing the messianic kingdom that was promised to come and that came with our Lord Jesus Christ. And so then we have to ask the question, what does this language really refer to? I, I'm assuming it's this messianic kingdom. And of course the answer depends upon the context in which the phrases are used. Sometimes it refers to something that's future. And we'll focus on this next week. And sometimes it, it refers to something that's present already. We'll get into that, as I said, more next week. Um, certainly both terms refer to the reign of God or of Jesus. Um, and so the Bible can speak of this kingdom in different ways. It can refer to the reign of God as it is recognized or exhibited in heaven or on earth through the church. We'll see some examples of that next week because the concept of the kingdom of God is not new with the New Testament. We just learn a lot more about it and all the prophetic promises about the kingdom of God that, that are brought to fruition in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. But one thing is certain, since the kingdom is the kingdom of God or kingdom of heaven, it is not ultimately of this world. Even if we're talking about the kingdom being manifested in this world now, that doesn't mean it's of this world, because it isn't. Uh, Jesus made this point perfectly clear when he was talking to Pontius Pilate, who misunderstood this idea, right? Because Jesus went around talking about a kingdom. Made it very clear he was the king of that kingdom, right? So it's not surprising that Pilate would have gotten wind of this, right? Uh, that there's some kingdom Jesus is talking about that he thinks is going to be at odds with the Roman rule. But notice what Jesus said to Pontius Pilate in John 18, 36. He said, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from here. And again, we'll delve more deeply into what Jesus meant by that statement next week. But for now, we just need to take notice of how crucial the concept of the kingdom was to our Lord Jesus' ministry and why we're spending the time on it that we're spending on it. And I've taught about the kingdom of God in the past when I've taught in the Gospels, and, and I've even gotten into some of the concepts we'll be getting into today and, and next week. But I think it's, for some of us it's an important reminder, and for others it might be new way of looking at things, new information. Um, but this is a really crucial concept to our Lord Jesus. It's a central concept in his teaching ministry. And so we're going to look at some examples of how Jesus preached the kingdom of God. In fact, how his gospel ministry was described as preaching the kingdom. In fact, any good gospel ministry can be described that way, as we'll see. There are several examples of this in, in Matthew's description of Jesus' ministry. For example, first of all, when Jesus began his public ministry, Matthew described it this way in Matthew 
And Jesus went about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom. That's how the good news was described, as the good news of the kingdom, the gospel of the kingdom, and healing all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease among the people. So you can see it's a pretty important concept if it's used to sum up what the good news was about <laughs> that Jesus preached. This term kingdom is a loaded term then, isn't it? It's got a whole lot of things that it's supposed to suggest if it can be used in this way. It's a way of summing up everything that Jesus' earthly ministry, messianic ministry, that continues now in heaven is all about. It's all about a kingdom. Uh, secondly, midway through his ministry, Matthew described his ministry the same way. In Matthew 9.35, he wrote this, Then Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. Now, he doesn't have to say preaching the gospel of the kingdom of heaven or the, preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God in either of these things because what other kingdom is it, right? <laughs> it's the kingdom of God slash the kingdom of heaven that's being talked about, the gospel of the kingdom of God, you could say. Again, it's a way of summarizing his ministry, his teaching ministry. The good news about Jesus is the good news about a kingdom over which Jesus is king. That's what the Messiah was supposed to be, a king in the line of David, right? And so he came to bring in a kingdom. And thirdly, toward the end of his earthly ministry, our Lord Jesus spoke of the way that the gospel of the kingdom would be preached to the whole world as the church awaits his second coming. So it's not just a descriptor of what Jesus' ministry was about, it's a descriptor of what the ministry of the church is supposed to be about when Jesus ascends to the Father. Uh, here's what we read in Matthew 24, beginning in verse 2. I'm going to read a pretty good section of the context here because this is in, in an eschatological context. Beginning in verse 2 of Matthew 24, Jesus said to them, Do not see all these things. He's in the temple precincts and in the environments there. Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. Now as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, what will these things be? What will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? The end of this age, as we'll see next week, which would lead us to the age to come. Right? What will be the sign of the end of the age, they're asking. And Jesus answered and said to them, Take heed that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will deceive many. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, a kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines, pestilences, and earthquakes in various places. All these things are the beginning of sorrows. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will be offended, will betray one another, and will hate one another. Then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many, and because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. 
but he who endures to the end shall be saved. Now we can't get into everything that that means that Jesus is forecasting here, but notice what he says in verse 14. And this gospel of the kingdom, the gospel he's been preaching we've seen already, because we've seen this language already in Matthew, right? This gospel of the kingdom that Jesus has been preaching, this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. He's answering the question, what will be the end of the age? Well, he says, it's not going to happen until this gospel of the kingdom is preached to all the world as a witness to all the nations. And that's the job that's been left to the church. This preaching of the gospel of the kingdom was continued by the apostles and is continued by believers today until Jesus comes back. And this leads us to the example of the apostles, how they preach the kingdom of God. There are several examples of this emphasis on the preaching of the kingdom of God in Luke's description of the ministry of the apostle Paul, who, who we know represents the same teaching that the rest of the apostles would have been doing, right? He's not going to be alone in this. First of all, when Paul spoke to the Ephesian elders, he summarized his ministry this way in Acts 20, beginning verse 25. Acts 20, 25. And indeed, now I know that you all, among whom I have gone preaching the kingdom of God. Well, this is the gospel of the kingdom Jesus talked about, right? This is what he's doing. And indeed, now I know that you all, among whom I have gone preaching the kingdom of God, will see my face no more. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men, for I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. Notice the assumption there that faithfully proclaiming the kingdom of God apparently entailed declaring the whole counsel of God. You haven't fully taught the kingdom of God unless you've taught the whole counsel of God. Why is that? Well, because in one way or another, the whole counsel of God is about this. Right? Secondly, when Paul met with the Jews in Rome while he was under house arrest, Luke sums up Paul's interaction with them this way in Acts 28-23. So when they had appointed him a day, many came to him at his lodging, to whom he explained and solemnly testified of the kingdom of God. Now you would expect him to say, um, the gospel about Jesus Christ. But for Luke, it's the same thing. Uh, Jesus used the language in the same way, right? The good news is the good news of the kingdom. If you're talking about the good news of Jesus Christ, you're talking about the good news of the kingdom, and vice versa. He, he explained and solemnly testified of the kingdom of God, persuading them concerning Jesus. We're not surprised to see that. From both the law of Moses and the prophets from morning till evening. There you have this emphasis on the whole counsel of God as they had it then, right? from the Law and the Prophets, the whole Old Testament, all the scriptures that they had at that time, uh, and that the Jews accepted as scriptures. Paul showed them in those scriptures the kingdom of God, which meant talking about Jesus throughout the scriptures. To talk about Jesus throughout the scriptures is to talk about the kingdom of God throughout the scriptures and vice versa. 
A third, and, and finally here, Luke ends the book of Acts by summarizing Paul's ministry in Rome as preaching the kingdom of God. He continued under house arrest there for probably at least a couple of years. And, uh, it's, well, it says two whole years in Acts 28.30. Then Paul dwelt two whole years in his own rented house and received all who came to him, preaching the kingdom of God. That's what Jesus said had to happen before he came back, right? Preaching the kingdom of God and teaching the things which concern the Lord Jesus Christ with all confidence, no one forbidding him. It's interesting if you read the gospel or uh, as it's explained by Paul to the Romans in the book of Romans, you don't see a constant emphasis on the idea of kingdom, kingdom, kingdom. But that doesn't mean that's not what it's all about. Uh, we don't want to commit the word concept fallacy. And that's this notion that unless you use a particular word that denotes a, denotes a particular concept, that you're not talking about that concept. You can be talking about the kingdom of God and never use the word kingdom of God. If you're talking about Jesus and you're talking about the fact that he's the Lord of everything, you're talking about his kingship. You're talking about the kingdom of God. Even conceptually, that's what you're saying, even if you don't use the word kingdom. To give you an example of the word concept fallacy, um, suppose I used this example recently. In fact, I mentioned it to someone last week. Suppose I, I, I was writing a, a book or a letter, and I, and I talked about uh, living in a house that had uh, secret agents all over the place. And that I like to hang out in the Oval Office during the day, and I really like to sleep in the Lincoln bedroom as often as I could. And uh, a lot of presidents have lived there in the past, actually, most of them, and, uh, and their wives, who we often call the First Lady. Um, and I really enjoyed living in that building. Now, what would I be saying to you? If I didn't use the word White House, would you be clueless as to what I was talking about? No, everybody was, he's talking about the White House. Right? So I don't have to use the term White House to be talking about the White House if everything I'm saying pertains to the White House. And it should be obvious that's what I'm talking about. Well, this is what you find in some of the New Testament. We can be talking about the kingdom of God every week here, we're in one way or another, talking about the kingdom of God, whether we use the phrase kingdom of God or not. That's what we're talking about. We should use the more phrase apparently more often than we do, <laughs> given the examples we've seen, in the New Testament to make it clearer to people on the outside what we're talking about, perhaps. But don't get into this idea, though, of thinking that unless somebody says kingdom of God, kingdom of God, kingdom of God, in every message, he's not talking about that. Paul didn't do that. He didn't use the term kingdom of God all the time. There are whole letters that he wrote where you won't find the term kingdom of God. But he's talking about Jesus as the king. He's talking about it as the Lord is the church and of the whole world and the creator. And he's talking, and he does talk about us being uh, translated into the kingdom of God's dear son and so forth. But he's conceptually, this is what he's talking about. This is the way you can summarize faithful preaching of the gospel. So if complete instruction in the gospel also involves instruction regarding the kingdom of God, then I think we need to understand what the Bible is talking about when it speaks of the kingdom of God. I think that's helpful. 
Too often these days, I think Christian preachers miss this heavy emphasis upon the kingdom of God in their ministries. Some overemphasize it and misunderstand it, as we saw at the beginning of this teaching today. And they misconstrue what this is about. Uh, they make it harder than it really is in some ways, and oversimplified in others, perhaps. But I think if we miss this emphasis altogether, as some people seem to do, largely those who don't do expository teaching through the Bible would and, and prefer to just teach topically, they may not ever really touch on this concept. And that could be part of the reason why Jesus' lordship is not so honored among so many. They water down, they may speak of Jesus as Lord, but they've so watered it down that it doesn't come close to meaning what the Bible means when he uses that word. When the Bible uses the word Lord of Jesus, it means he's God, creator, and king of the universe. You'd be hard-pressed to find a lot of Christians that understand that these days, that that's what it means. Partly because some of these kinds of emphasis have been lost in teaching out there. Jesus is your buddy. He's your co-pilot, as some people put on a bumper sticker. He's your friend that helps you through life. And that's true. Jesus is our friend. He has called us his friends. But what makes that such a meaningful concept is this. It's the God of the universe who's called us his friends. This isn't just anybody that's called us his friends. But people these days like to focus on that aspect of who Jesus is and lose sight of his sovereignty almost altogether. By the way, it shows in these sort of Jesus is my boyfriend kind of worship, quote-unquote worship songs that are out there that don't really uh, view Jesus as high and holy and lifted up and exalted king as they should, some of them. Uh, so this idea of Jesus is the king, is the sovereign, is crucial. If we don't understand his kingdom, we don't understand what kind of king he is. Like we should. So we're going to take some time to do it. Uh, continuing on to next week. And hopefully, sort of avoid this kind of watered-down view of Jesus that we see out there. That doesn't give him the glory he deserves. That doesn't magnify him fully for who he really is. Just ask yourself this. How many churches have you been in? that you could summarize the teaching of the gospel there as the teaching of the kingdom of God. Like the apostolic preaching could be summarized. Like Jesus' teaching could be summarized. Just to ask that question is very telling, isn't it? Now, again, it doesn't mean if they're not use, consistently using this terminology, if they're not conceptually talking about these things. You find out when you find out who, who they think Jesus is. What's their view of him? Then you find out whether or not these concepts are really there, regardless of the language, specific language that's always used. But anyway, we've begun to scratch the surface a little bit today. We'll dig in much deeper next week, I hope. Uh, when, as I said earlier, we'll see that the Bible can sometimes refer to the kingdom of God as a present reality. And sometimes it can refer to the, God, the kingdom of God as a future reality. 
And we'll see that it's both. We'll see that the future kingdom, as I prayed earlier, sort of reached back into the past, which is our present, and manifested itself in the church as a spiritual kingdom that looks forward to the fullness of the kingdom will come in the new heavens, the new earth one day. And for those of us who are premillennialists, with a millennial kingdom in there as a precursor to the ultimate new heavens and new earth, I'm one of those premillennial guys. Uh, but the things we're going to talk about don't, don't demand that you have any particular millennial view. I think we should all be able to agree on these concepts. For now, let's just remember that our Lord Jesus came in fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies as the messianic king and that we are part of his kingdom over which he reigns forever. For as the apostle Peter tells us, Jesus has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers having been made subject to him. That's another way of saying he's the king of everything in heaven and on earth. Let's pray. Holy Father, I hope I've been able to uh, get us started off right on this teaching today. And um, it's my prayer that we will, we will have a good understanding of these ideas as they're revealed in Scripture and uh, that when we read about these things in the future, we'll, I pray, have the right mindset in thinking about it. Um, we see this now and not yet tension throughout the scriptural teaching about our salvation, not just the kingdom. We, we live between two ages. We, we experience the powers of the age to come in the last days of this present age. We have a foretaste of what's coming through the Spirit indwelling us, through knowing Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. Our citizenship, as Paul said to the Philippians, is ultimately in heaven, and we are just strangers passing through. We look for a heavenly city, a heavenly country, in a new heavens and a new earth. That's where we belong. And we'll see that in the coming weeks, I hope, very clearly. For now, just help us to appreciate that we serve a great king. And he's sovereign over everything. We've had a chance to think about, and it's been brought up this morning in the worship time, some of the difficulties we face in our culture now as Christians. People are casting about for answers. Ken was right. The answers that we need are found in Christ because he's the one who's in charge of everything. He is a Lord and there is no other ultimately than him who is Lord of everything. So help us to walk through our lives with confidence. We may not know the president or the governor or the mayor. We may not have any pull in this society whatsoever but we know the king of everything. And I'd rather know him because he's the one that can make a difference in my life. He's the one that can save me from my sins. He's the one who can raise me from the dead and give me everlasting life as a free gift through faith in his work on the cross and his resurrection. And I pray, Lord,
for everyone who's a believer here today that you'll help us to leave here today with confidence, confidence that we serve such a great king and that we get to know the gospel of the kingdom. And I pray for anyone here who has not yet come to know you that he or she today would say, I, I want to bow the knee to Jesus who is sovereign Lord and King. He is King of kings and Lord of lords. I want to surrender my life to him and accept the free gift of forgiveness of sins, everlasting life, eternity in heaven from him, the one who died on the cross for my sins and rose from the dead on my behalf. Lord, we'll give you all the glory for what you do in answer to these prayers. We pray them in the name of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you once again for your kind attention.